Hi, thanks for joining us for this message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. We pray that you are blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Red Church and its ministries, or if you'd like to support us financially, you can find out more by heading to redchurch.org.au. We, two weeks ago, um, looked at Zeal. Last week we had Brian Heasley here, who was fantastic, spoke. I think it's the first sermon I've ever heard on smell. I was slightly disappointed he didn't have like wafting sense. Um, maybe he did, I didn't get close enough. Um, but I want to continue something that I brought uh, before us two, two weeks ago, uh, and it's the topic of zeal. Zeal is a word which has declined in use since the beginning of the 20th century. It was a very highly used word in English, but has fallen off in favor. But it's a very biblical word. The scriptures encourage us to have zeal. Romans 12, 11 says, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Zeal is not human energy. Spiritual zeal is something that comes from the Holy Spirit. And so had not a feedback how helpful it was to hear that biblical definition of zeal a couple of weeks ago. But I want to ask a question as we continue to look at zeal. And the question is, how do you ensure that zeal keeps going? Now, a lot of people may have had a moment of zeal that you can look back on spiritually. It could be a a high point, a conference, a moment when you were out in nature and you just felt in complete awe of perhaps a scene before you and felt God's presence really close to you. For other people, you may think back to a youth camp, perhaps it's something recent, perhaps it's something decades ago, but it was a moment where you felt that your zeal was fanned and your zeal was, was almost out, radiating out from you. Now, not all of you might have felt that that's fine, but often we have these moments in the spiritual life where our zeal is intensified. That's another way of looking what it is to have a personal renewal. And sometimes zeal doesn't just take over a person. Zeal for God's house sometimes takes over a community, and we call these revivals or awakenings. Now, in the 18th century, when there was a, a, the Great Awakening, as it was called, one of the questions they asked was, how do we make this Great Awakening different to many of the other times where the zeal of God's people were, was intensified? Often, you'll see God move powerfully, his spirit is present, but then you see it drop off afterwards, and sometimes drop off in quite radical ways. Sometimes after a period where God has come and renewed his church, in 10 years later, or even you know, not, not long after, months after, you'll often see uh, you know, people turning and going to strange directions, sometimes there's moral failings. Often the time after, a move of God is greatly contested. But one thing that seems to happen is the zeal ebbs away. Now, in the 18th century, one of the leaders of the Great Awakening, John Wesley, asked a question. And I've actually got the question here for you. Looking at what was going on, this amazing thing of this intensification of zeal that was literally not just transforming the spiritual and social landscape of Britain, but was going all around the world, he asked the question, Will not the present revival of religion in a short time die away? An event that has its beginning and end within the space of one generation. Will it not be confirmation of that melancholy remark of Luther? Martin Luther had said earlier that a revival of religion never lasts longer 
than one generation. But Wesley replies, but blessed be God, this remark does not hold with regard to the present instance. Seeing this revival has already lasted above 50 years. And the Great Awakening, it depends who you talk to, could be argued that went for a century or more after this point in time. And one of the reasons that it did was that the people who were part of that awakening, that intensification of zeal, were really interested in the idea of how you pass on zeal. So I talked about the biblical concept of zeal a couple of weeks ago, but I want to talk today about the passing on of zeal, which is an equally biblical concept. And we see this in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, Psalm 78, just one example, verses 1 to 7, where it says, My people hear my teaching, listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from of old that we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us. We will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. You start to get this image of the passing of of zeal down to the next generation, this bringing up of the hidden spiritual things that often are forgotten and passing them on. We see an example of this, a real world example in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, where Paul speaking to his disciple Timothy says this, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you also, seeing it passed down through three generations here. Paul says in Corinthians this, speaking to the church in Corinth, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. Now, traditions is quite a sort of tricky word. Some of us like traditions. You like a Christmas traditions. At other times in our culture, we can despise traditions, seeing them as something holding us back. But if we get behind all of those meanings from the English word, and we look at the Greek word, which the New Testament was written in, the actual word here is paradosis. Paradosis. And I actually want to talk about that, because paradosis is the vehicle which enables the passing on of zeal, handing down something that's really important. And paradosis was not just something that people in the church were interested in, that this was a word that was understood throughout the world at that time, the Greco-Roman world. It was a really big deal, and it actually should be a big deal today. And in order to help you understand uh, paradosis, I want to go to a place which I think many of you are anticipating where I'm about to go to, and that is Planet of the Apes. Uh, the end scene, no, many people guessed that. The end scene of the first Planet of the Apes, uh, Charlton Heston is, a, is, a, is an astronaut. He goes into space and he thinks he lands on another planet, but actually he's landed on Earth. And this is revealed in the final scene where he comes along this beach and sees the remnants of the Statue of, a Statue of Liberty and he falls to his knees. And I think, I can't remember, these, I should have watched it, uh, but I remember, I think he's, you know, you maniacs, you blew it up. And, you know, it's sort of a bit meme-ish uh, used around the place. But really, this poses what many apocalyptic movies pose. What if all of this, which we take for granted, falls away? And if you found yourself in an apocalyptic situation, not one where everyone's wiped out, but perhaps there's a minority of survivors, how would you cope? How would you cope? 
Now, the scientist Lewis Dartnell wrote a book and he posed this question. If there was a terrible event which wiped out a lot of society as we knew it and there was a handful of survivors, how would you actually survive and how would they rebuild the world? This is like a, a posh British acceptable form of you know, doomsday prepping. And uh, basically he says this, people living in developed nations have become disconnected from the processes of, of the civilization that supports them. Individually, we are astoundingly ignorant of even the basics of the production of food, shelter, clothes, medicine, materials, or vital substances. Our survival skills have actually for you to the point that much of humanity would be incapable in sustaining itself if the life support systems of modern civilization failed, if food no longer magically appeared on shop shelves or clothes on hangers. Dartnell goes on. He says, there was a time when everyone was a survivalist with a far more intimate connection to the land and methods of production and to survive in a post-apocalyptic world, you need to turn back the clock and relearn these core skills. Paradosis is linked to how you pass on what is known as essential knowledge. Core skills is essential, essential knowledge. Now, in order to illustrate this, because in the audience here, when I talk about if there was an apocalyptic event and societies we knew it was like paired right back and we're almost like back in the medieval period and you were part of the survivors, there's some people who are just like terrified of that concept. I mean, you can't survive when you don't have like awesome coffee around you. You know, you head into rural areas of Australia and you're stressing and looking up an app to find a really good coffee. That is some of you. So the idea of a post-apocalyptic post scenario is terrifying to you. Others would just think it's terrible. But I just wanted to say, there is a subset, and I know we're not meant to generalize today, but I'm going to, uh, because it's mostly blokes who wouldn't say this, but there's an element where they're here going, yeah, it'd be terrible, but I reckon I'd do all right. <laughs> you know who you are, I'm not gonna get you to put up a hand. Now I thought about it and I thought, okay, so who would do all right? One person I know would do all right is Daniel. Come up here, Daniel. <laughs> By the way, if there is an apocalyptic uh, scenario, look for Daniel and I'll tell you why. So, just a quick question, when we talk about essential knowledge, uh, there is a, 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 a woman who has flown into our country and is appearing in Melbourne. Um, uh, she's doing some stuff at the hallowed turf of the Melbourne cricket ground. Uh, uh, does anyone, put your hand up if you know who I'm talking about, who's just flown into our city. Okay, so that's information. That's not essential knowledge. Okay. <laughs> So we have so much information. Like, I could probably sing, I don't know, I'm just literally making this up. A Brian Adams song, Summer of 69. I could start singing it. I don't even know that, you know, and you, probably some of you could finish some of the lines, and you've not thought about Brian Adams for 30 years, but that's information. Our brains are filled with information. Daniel has some essential knowledge. Okay, just quick quiz. We have not planned this at all. Okay, you worked for a period in the middle of nowhere. Just give us a five, 10 second summary of, of why you have essential knowledge. Uh, good. I, uh, I grew up on farms um, in South Australia and when I was 22, 23, I went and worked on a sheep station in the middle of South Australia. Yeah. So, <laughs> so what you're saying is uh, South Australia is a post-apocalyptic <laughs> landscape. <laughs> I don't know, it's 
Yes, but the rest. I want you to get out of Adelaide. It's it's Mad Max. No, not really. Okay, could you, if there was a post-apocalyptic situation, could you? Do you think you could rudimentarily fashion for say ten of us a shelter? Yeah. Okay, if there was like a generator and it's there, and we somehow like you know repurpose a generator, and there's a bunch of Melburnians looking at it, and they've got no idea. Could you? Get that generator going. Do you think? Um, so if it's early 2010, it probably could. Yeah. Okay. Well, it probably will be. Yeah. Okay. Great. Okay. Final question. We come across a sheep. We head up to the RSPCA. There. There's a little bleating sheep. It's rocking around. If we gave you a couple hours, could we be eating that sheep that night? Could you? Could you pull that off for us? 100%. That is essential knowledge. Uh, final one. If, if I cut myself badly and was bleeding, do you think you could fix me up? Is that beyond your knowledge? Yeah. Um, oh, in a basic way, yes. Yes, great. Yes, fantastic. Okay, so these, thank you. So give me a round of applause. If there's a nuclear war, there's your man. In the city of Sarajevo, when it was sieged in the Yugoslavian wars in the 90s, all of a sudden, the people who were the most important were not people who had heaps of knowledge and university degrees. There's a group of individuals in the city who actually knew how to take the water running through the city and actually created this system where they were able to create electricity by throwing these sort of wheels. I think they actually repurposed perhaps from like a fairground or something. And these wheels through, through, through water power actually generated electricity. All of a sudden, those people were super important. And so this is essential knowledge, essential knowledge. And this is why all the way back to the ancient Greeks, they were interested in how you pass it on. What's the most important stuff we need to know? And when you accumulate this stuff, you're actually able to build a civilization and build a culture. Now, it doesn't just take an apocalyptic nuclear attack or the internet going down or a cyclone to bring you to a point where essential knowledge is lost. In Australia, one of the reasons that post-COVID, and this is around the world, but the Australian domestic uh, airline uh, sort of scene is one of the most, like I've traveled lots of different domestic uh, airline uh, systems in the world, and Australia's is pretty darn good. But post-COVID, there's increasingly flights that are being canceled. One of the reasons the ABC reported in the last couple of weeks, I've got a picture here, is that in 2020, a lot of air traffic controllers began to resign. And the problem is, it's not just that when someone resigns, you replace them with a fresh graduate. It's that people who've had lots of experience in certain industries have essential knowledge. And one of the reasons that your flight is often late at the moment or cancelled is because we can't replace these people. But it's not just the people, it's the essential knowledge because it's not being passed on. Another fascinating evidence of this, the Wall Street Journal reported recently that as the world globe is warming, all of a sudden the Arctic is coming into play. There's vast minerals in the Arctic. There's new sort of shipping routes that the great powers are now competing for the Arctic need. And so the United States needs to build more icebreaker ships. But the problem is, and this is bizarre, the of, of, of 21st century developed world is they've actually forgotten how to smelt the, 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 or the uh, steel to actually make icebreakers. 
This is an essential knowledge that we, in the 1940s, we knew how to do, and the 1960s and the 1970s, but we don't know how to do this anymore. Even more disturbingly, the US ICBM fleet, which is the missiles that fire nuclear weapons, a whole bunch of guys have resigned, and they're now not sure how to maintain them to stop them from exploding. So maybe that's the apocalyptic event. Uh, I'll be handing out Daniel's uh, mobile number. Actually, no, no mobile number. You just have to, he'll be on a mountain going, and you'll just find him. Now, it's not just these essential skills in terms of science and engineering that are being lost. The demographer, again, speaking of the US, but I think this is applicable here, uh, Joel Kotkin, makes the point that our social essential knowledge is disappearing. He writes that many employees in the United States report difficulty in finding workers capable of having a serious conversation. Over 60% of applicants are found to be lacking in basic social skills. We're struggling to even talk to people, the basic elements of if you're in a service industry, to smile at someone coming through the door. There is this great loss of essential knowledge happening in our culture at the moment. And what this means is many of the things that we assumed would keep on happening and the comfortable life that we live is not, just not going to be exactly the same going forward. Now, this is across industries in the West. And news.com.au, in an article about this, actually got in one of Australia's top experts on these sort of things and talked to him about the fact that this essential knowledge is being lost across multiple industries. And they asked him, his name is Malcolm Davis. And he says this, he says, we've been focusing on advanced high tech, with the result being that the basic stuff that does require a different sort of knowledge, notice that, a different sort of knowledge, the knowledge is now lost and will have to be reacquired. What is needed is for the US government or the Australian government to engage with the people who've retired from those sectors, bring them back to educate the new generation, just don't waste that knowledge and skill. What he is advocating here is paradosis. The process intergenerationally of handing down essential knowledge. See, there's no point making a discovery like how to cut steel if that is forgotten in one generation or how to talk to a stranger. If is a little map I made of how to have a flourishing civilization if you're planning on doing that. And it basically goes that essential knowledge needs paradosis to be passed down, and this is how we build things and grow things together, and this is what a flourishing civilization is. So how do we get to the point where that process of passing down, paradosis means to hand over in the Greek when a city was taken over by an army and a new bunch of people moved in, that city was paradosis over to a conquering army. So it's a handing over. How do we get to this point where this is being forgotten? Well, the historians Anthony Grafton and Anne Blair detected that in the beginning of the 19th century, this idea began to grow, and now it's grown up and flowered in our time, that you don't need to submit yourself to a process of learning essential knowledge, because inside of you is a genius. Every one of you, if you just pushed aside these traditions and norms and stopped submitting yourself to apprenticeships and learning, that if you look just inside, you have the answer in you. 
And that really, history's moved forward, not by this passing on of information, but by the entrepreneurial figure, the Steve Jobs character. And there's a Steve Jobs inside of us all. We don't need to pass stuff away. We actually need to throw away the rule book, have a startup, and just come up with brilliant new ideas. Now, sometimes you do need a Steve Jobs character to create something new, because we get stuck. But the problem is, as the philosopher Matthew Crawford records, is that the various means of cultural transmission have been widely dismantled in the name of personal autonomy. I don't want to submit to the process of learning from someone. So the model looks like this now. Essential knowledge plus autonomy equals a declining civilization because the essential stuff that we need to know isn't passed along. It's seen as an impediment to individual self-expression. Better to discover the creative genius within and cast all things off in a great project of self-liberation. But we need to know stuff. So how do we then find stuff? So the model now looks like this. <laughs> just look it up, man. Look it up. I'll just Google that. Sorry, I don't need to come and meet with you. But this is a disaster because this actually doesn't create a central knowledge. Yes, you can learn some stuff from YouTube, but remember Malcolm Davis said, it's certain kinds of knowledge. Let me explain this. I uh, and Trudy bought a new dishwashing machine and we went to the showroom. I think I've got a picture for this. It's not actually my dishwasher, but it's a picture of a kid and a dishwasher for the visual learners out there. We went to the showroom, and, and we're talking to this woman about this machine. She's like, it's fantastic. It's got 27 different settings you can put it on. You know, it's like eco, half eco, I don't know, full moon eco. Like literally every different option you can press. I'm like, which one's the best one to use? You can use any of them. The world's your oyster, she tells us. You know, like how much powder do you put in? Just put it in. It's all fine. I just put anything in there. You don't need to rinse. It's just all wonderful. This is a great machine. We were convinced we bought it. Then over six months, problems begin to develop. And we call the, the guy who is, is the sort of repairman service guy, and he comes in. And I'm like, here's the problems. And he's like, okay, don't use all of the settings, just use this one, the intense setting. What about the eco one? He's like, mate, do not use it, just use the intense setting. Okay, how much powder are you putting? He's like, mate, you know what I do? I've got a little trick. I get a teaspoon, and I just fill it flat, and then I put it in. Works like a charm, he's got that machine. He works with the machines every day. See, there's the showroom knowledge, but then here's a guy who lives and breathes, not just dishwashers, but this particular model of dishwashers. That is essential knowledge, it's actually in place. One other example, we have twin boys, Billy and Hudson. Trudy carried the boys beyond full term, uh, which is an amazing effort, and she um, had to get induced, so like we went in there. Now we had Grace, I'd, been there with Grace. This was an entire different operation. This was like a landing on the moon. Like, there's so many people in the room, like with Grace, I was sort of just there and they're like, you know, dad be involved. Like this, like, mate, stand over there. Like, I'm, I'm 30 meters away. Like, I was not involved. And we didn't realize. So, uh, Hudson was born first and there was 13 minutes between Hudson being born and Billy uh, coming out. And it was a long 13 minutes. Now, what I didn't realize was the obstetrician, uh, obstetrician, obstetrician? Um, this is the breakdown of essential knowledge before your very eyes. <laughs> the obstetrician, actually there was a problem with Billy. 
And, and literally, apparently, we were 40 seconds from like, right, we're going to just go upstairs and like we're doing sort of emergency surgery, emergency seizure happening at that moment. But we found out afterwards, you're talking to a friend, the obstetrician we had was trained by this really old and very experienced obstetrician who passed down this essential knowledge that you may not learn this in med school, but if this is happening at this moment, because she'd been there and watched this other person, this is what you do at this moment. Now, in that moment, that was you know, life-saving or danger-saving essential knowledge. So there's certain kinds of essential knowledge that has to happen in a personal way. You see, zeal can be caught in high moments, but actually, zeal to be passed on has to happen in certain environments. Where does paradosis occur? I just want to give you three areas that I think it occurs. Number one, if you're going to have zeal passed on, if you're going to pass it on to other people, it's like a seed that needs good soil to go to. And the first place is your personal posture. Part of the reason we are losing in our broad culture essential knowledge is because we essentially have an arrogant attitude that we don't need to know this stuff until we can't cut steel or a plane doesn't arrive. Or actually certain industries just break down because people can't talk to each other. The Apollo space program got to the moon, but if there wasn't the idea that they were working with particular postures and attitudes of high trust, collaboration, relying on people, it wasn't just the technology, it was also the personal posture that people took with each other, that's what enabled this thing to work. So for information to be passed on and for spiritual zeal to be passed on, it's really important. Just look at this verse here, uh, 2 Timothy 2.2. Paul is talking about this process. It's, Paradosis is in Timothy. It says, And the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people, reliable people, who will also be qualified to teach others. There is a sense where for us to be receivers of the zeal that God has passed down through the generations, for us to be advancing the kingdom of God in the world, we need to have a sense of what is Paul getting at here with reliability. There's trustworthiness. That you're going to receive this and you're actually going to cherish this information, this essential knowledge, this spiritual insight, this spiritual revelation, and you're going to pass it on and you're going to be good soil. I think... One of the areas that the enemy is coming against is that he's attacking us in this personal space. And we see all through the culture this lack of trust, lack of being able to communicate, lack of humility. And that's bad for our culture. But when that seeps into the church, it actually means that the transmission of faith, not just down generations, but between us, begins to be cut off. So personal posture is absolutely key. It's funny, we keep the idea of paradosis alive in our culture in certain industries because you just can't not do it, like apprenticeships. Some of you have been apprentices in trades. And to be an apprentice, there is a hierarchy. We don't like this today. We're big on everyone being equal and power dynamics and all this stuff. But if you're an apprentice and you want to learn how to be an electrician or a plumber or a sculptor, Anything where you need to learn from somewhere else, someone else, you have to humbly admit, yes, there is a power differentiation. It's not that you're better than the other person or they're better than you. It's that there is a hierarchy that comes from someone knowing how to do something. I submit myself spiritually 
Two people who I see great depth in their hearts and their love for God. I submit myself, those who have zeal. When I meet people like this, and they're not always the big, biggest leaders out there. I'm not just talking about the people who write books. Sometimes when you meet someone and you see them, it's like, I want to have what you have. I want to learn from you. So the posture we take as zeal is passed on must be one of humility. The second thing is, paradosis has to happen within the social fabric. The ancients understood this. They understood that essential knowledge has to be passed on. The guy who was measuring the powder that went in the dishwasher, I had to stand next to him. I never met this guy, but we're standing there almost in physical proximity next to each other, and it had to be passed on. If I just watched a YouTube thing, it wouldn't have been the same. There was something very interpersonal about that exchange. And we are created to be social creatures. God created us like that. And so the social fabric is where this happens, where zeal is communicated. It's modeled. In Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says this in chapter 10, verses 24 to 25. And let us consider how we may spur one on another towards love and good deeds, not giving, the habit of, not giving up meeting together as some in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Community always works in two directions. It's either a virtuous circle or a negative circle. This is talking about the encouraging of zeal in each other. This sense where if there's a culture where people encourage people onwards, God begins to move in powerful ways. One of the most encouraging things, I mean, I've been in ministry now for some time. The last six months was incredibly tough for us, uh, me and Trudy. But it's actually been an incredible time where I have heard I think more stories and testimonies from people in this congregation, some you've heard on the stage, others I've just heard in conversation, of God turning up and doing things that have been such a profound encouragement to me. And I know others have been encouraged by what they've seen in others. When that begins to happen, a virtual circle is created as we encourage each other, when that's culturally spread, and that's fantastic soil for zeal to be passed on. That's a culture of paradosis. We're handing over what God is doing in us to others. I think part of the danger is today, we have resources, and resources are fantastic. Red does a podcast. This sermon will be podcast as people will be listening now in different places around the world to my words. We do rebuilders, and there is a world of wonderful, wonderful resources out there. But resources are helps. They're not the main game. And the danger is because you can get the most amazing talks on, on YouTube and podcasts, and you can do it all, and you can construct a kind of Christian faith where you're just having good information, and some of it is really important. Hear me wrong. I'm not downplaying any of it. We're going to keep doing it ourselves because it advances the kingdom. But that has to be then interpreted and lived out in context. I have brilliant ideas that I think are going to revolutionize the church, and I'll be writing them down one morning, and then I'll get into the office, and I'll try and put that into practice. I'm like, this is absolutely rubbish because this issue is not going to work amongst the society known as humans. There's a great idea with poor, you know, practical application. There is something about how we actually live this out together. Zeal is passed on in the social fabric. And oh my goodness, how much is the enemy ripping apart the social fabric at the moment? If we're in a culture where people can't talk to each other, and I'm not, I'm not like, 
I'm not putting that on anyone, but there's a sense where we're being pulled apart from each other, and that is the enemy salting the ground so nothing will grow, and that paradosis and passing on of faith and zeal cannot happen. One of the, thing, the, the things the church can do, just quietly radical, is to re-knit the social fabric. Have a chat. Say good day to someone. Ask how the barista's going. These little things are the spaces we are called to be as the people of God and not give up the habit of meeting together. One of the things that I have seen happen in people who have been transformed in the last little while here at Red is, yes, there's moments where the Holy Spirit fell at the renewal sessions and there's all these incredible mountaintop experiences, but almost all of them began to perhaps go with their huddle to the prayer room. Turn up to this, turn up to that. When we do that, we're putting the world back together. Last one, paradise happens in the context of work and life. This, this, this verse is strangely countercultural and strangely controversial. Well, there's controversial parts of the Bible, but there's something really controversial to this, and you have to think about it. Paul, to the church in Thessalonica, says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. This, this is not told to us by our culture. You are to create a catalogue of earth-shattering experiences and then communicate them to everyone online. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business. Ouch. Work with your hands. We live in a culture which is massively put one group of jobs above others, like finance and fashion and creativity is, is up there, and there's nothing wrong with that stuff. But working with our hands, we've been put down here. Here is Paul saying, work with your hands. Why is he saying this? Now, if you don't work with your hands and you work in a field where it's, I don't know, you're tapping on a keyboard, I'm not saying now you have to go and, I don't know, become a stonemason. <laughs> but there's something there, isn't there? There is something here that through our work, God does something in us. We've Scene work is this space where, because the religious elements in society have receded, we're looking for our work to almost have a spiritual input into us, which gives us this sense of meaning that in the past people only looked to religion for. There's something here that when we work, when you are a parent and you're changing dirty nappies, when... You're at home and you're cleaning up. There's something in that that is actually good for our souls. And that is something that must be meditated upon. Just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders so that you will not be dependent upon anybody. Paradosis happens, whether it's passing out of essential knowledge in engineering, but also it happens in these very ordinary spaces, if your spiritual life is just dependent upon those high moments where you get out of your ordinary life and you have the great conference moment, and they're great, but also it must happen in these ordinary places as well. Seek experience, life experience, rather than once-in-a-lifetime experiences. Life experience, life experience with God is hugely, hugely important. Now, I've just made a little map thing here. It's either brilliant 
or may not make sense. <laughs> but this is a living laboratory, so I'll point this out to you. Essential knowledge is passed on to us in these spaces. It can't happen in some ether disconnected space. It's going to happen in that sense when you have a personal attitude of humility. It happens in the social fabric and it happens in the very ordinary places and rhythms of life. You see, anyone can get zeal at the high point of a conference on the top of a mountain at this high adrenaline ecstatic moment, but zeal is nurtured and matured in these places. Wesley had his moments of preaching to the crowd, and it would have been incredible. And the guy could preach to so many people, the Holy Spirit falling. There's just all these moments that are these high mountain moments. But the, the revival went on because they then took it into these places and places, and this is where we need zeal to be nurtured and matured. And I just want to end with this thought. Often, we, I think, do a disservice to the biblical concept of zeal because we see it as something that happens to 16, 17, and 18-year-olds on youth camps. Zeal needs to continue, but it needs to mature, and these are the spaces and places where it matures. And I think all of us, me, all of us, need to do a searching of our hearts because I think these are some of the battlegrounds that the enemy has chosen to take us on. And his great strategic goal is that zeal is not passed on. But actually, what if in 2024, God has been speaking to you? God is fanning into flames the faith. And God wants this to move forward, to spill out from us to others in these spaces and places. As we end... I have this real sense that some of those speak to some people in the room. There are people here who have struggled to submit to processes, to have that attitude of humility. You've been, in a sense, bamboozled by the culture which actually says it's about self-creation, throwing off the shackles of the processes which you find uncomfortable and awkward and you have to submit to. But actually God is inviting you to have an attitude of humility. Other people find yourself, you know, you know the thing that is just terrible about when the social fabric comes apart? You may not be one of the people pulling apart the social fabric. You may be desperate for community and for connection, but when everyone's doing it, it affects you. But today, I thought about this, if, if you don't want to have a phone today, it's going to bounce back on you more than the people who still have a phone if you want to go in that countercultural direction. I think there's people here who've had that sense where you just feel the very bite of the social fabric pulling apart. But actually God is calling us to be part of the solution, to knit together, to step into places where there may be an awkward conversation, you say hello to someone, and God is calling us to knit that space back. And I think God also wants to redeem people's work lives. He wants to redeem your domestic lives and see these as not places to escape from, but actually places where God is teaching you to develop that zeal. So what we're going to do is this. We're going to stand. We're going to get the band up. And we need the Holy Spirit to give us zeal. We need the Holy Spirit in us to pass these things on. I have a real sense that there is this key moment that we're at. There is new generations emerging. 
I look in my street at some of the kids who were little kids when we moved in who are now like 17, 18, 19, getting their licenses. So there is an emerging generation that is coming up. And they're looking at the church. And they're looking at Christians. And they're not looking for hype or better marketing or better graphics. Shoutier rants. I think they're actually looking for people who are truly living this in the everyday. They're looking for much overused word, but they're looking for people who are spiritually authentic. And I think just as John Wesley's generation asked the question, how do we not just get zeal for ourselves, but how do we pass zeal on? In the New Testament, that doesn't just happen biologically. It happened biologically in the Old Testament. The New Testament happens as we disciple others. I think there's a real invitation for us here to be people who pass on the good news of Jesus, the zeal, fan it into flames in the next generation. So I'd love us to pray into that. I'd also just want to extend the opportunity if any of these areas have spoken to you, if you're wanting zeal in these places, if you realize that the enemy's been at work and you need victory in that, there's going to be an opportunity for people to pray on the side. So I just want to invite you forward. But let's together pray and worship And let's actually go to to a little bit of spiritual war here against the powers and principalities which are actually pulling apart the threads of our society, not just because that's their dastardly plan, but because they actually want to stop the passing on of zeal and faith to the next generation and stop it in you. So let's just move now from the the sort of posture of passivity and let's actually move into a posture of proactivity. In the high places, we can contend for God to move. Let's worship. Let our worship be our warfare. Respond, come. Just in the last few moments here, Sunday morning, let's move something in the heavenlies.